0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to our event today, um, where we'll be launching our report on gender-based violence in Iraq. Um, We're just waiting for a few more people to um, join us and then we'll begin. Um, We had a few technical issues, uh, so sorry about the late start to this event, but I'll just wait a minute or two and then I will get um, going. So thank you so much for joining us today. Um, So I'll start. My name is Taif. I am a research officer at the LSC Middle East Center, where I work on Iraq. Um, And I'm joined today by uh, my co-authors on the Gender-Based Violence Report, um, who are also all really amazing women's rights activists in Iraq. And it's very exciting to have them um, with us today. So I'll just start by introducing them quickly. Uh, Marwa Abdel-Ridha is a lawyer. She's also a founder of a really amazing um, legal advocacy NGO in Baghdad called Forha. Um, and Faal Abd is the project's director of public aid organization, which is an Iraq-based NGO. Um, she also worked on gender-based violence previously in conflict-affected areas in Iraq. And Amal Kabashi is a very prominent um, feminist activist and coordinator of the Iraqi Women Network. She has been leading the advocacy campaign to legislate an anti-domestic violence law in Iraq. So what we'll do is I'll begin by introducing the report um, and then I will hand it over to um, my colleagues to go into more detail. Um, So, if you have any questions, you can put those in the Q&A box. Please make sure that you put them in the Q&A box and not the chat box. Um, Please note that this event is being recorded and there's simultaneous interpretation into Arabic. So, if you want to listen in Arabic or in English, when our um, Arabic speakers will be presenting, you need to click on the interpretation box on the right-hand corner of the screen. Um, And if you'd like to tweet about this event, you can do so by using the hashtag uh, LSC Middle East. Okay, so I'll begin by um, introducing the report uh, quickly. So for this report, what we did is we interviewed 34 people ranging from lawyers to judges to women's rights activists and politicians, and our aim was to think about how accessible the criminal and family law systems in Iraq are for women who've been subjected to gender-based violence. And our main uh, findings can be summarized in, in four points. So first of all, we started at the level of the parliament, And we tried to think about the kind of obstacles um, that women have faced when trying to implement and push for the implementation of uh, pro-women laws and feminist initiatives. And one of the biggest issues is that women um, have very limited decision-making power within Parliament, and this is broadly because um, Often they're appointed uh, on the basis of their party affiliation or their sectarian affiliation, which means that one, they either don't have the experience or the qualifications to push for um, pro-women initiatives, um, and that two, they're expected to toe the party line and aren't supposed to go against the agendas of the patriarchal parties that put them in place or uh, granted them their position in the first place. And this is made worse and justified by the fact that often these patriarchal parties use religion and culture, so patriarchal interpretations of religion and culture, as a means of justifying um, their stance. The second issue we looked at was corruption and how corruption so high level corruption means that there's basically no money left uh, for women's rights uh, initiatives and it means that anything that is implemented isn't properly resourced or followed up on. And corruption in Iraq really trickles down to um, the sort of ground level. So we see that in courts and in police stations, often women are expected to pay bribes for their um, papers to be processed. Um, And that also um, we see a lot of interference from political parties and tribes that put pressure on judicial um, officials, legal officials to um, drop cases um, and this this kind of bribery and the need to pay um, fees to have papers processed is particularly harmful to women because in Iraq um, 88% of women are not in employment and therefore don't have access to independent um, incomes. We also talk a little bit about administrative obstacles. So filing petitions, um, whether criminal petitions or divorce petitions often requires the payment um, of money, which as I said, women don't have access to. Um, And this is made worse by the fact that often policemen um, and people working in criminal courts are unprofessional and these spaces are seen to be seedy and inappropriate places for women to um, sort of enter and to report complaints to, which again works to deter them from so doing. And this is really compounded by the lack of women at all um, levels of the justice system, which means that women don't feel um, that like they are able to lodge complaints because they don't want to share um, sort of their vulnerability and intimate uh, or instances of intimate forms of violence with um, male officers uh, who are also often perpetrators of the same kind of violence. And the last point I'll make is about lack of accountability. So, what we see in Iraq across um, from the sort of top to the bottom um, is the fact that there's a lack of accountability, one for corruption, whether it's um, high level or petty corruption, which means there's no deterrence. There's also a lack of accountability um, that works sort of against people who have um, attacked women, who have. Um, advocated for gender an end to gender-based violence or women politicians who've advocated for certain laws which again means there's a lack of deterrence um, and then finally we found that it gender stereotyping is systematic in decisions made by the judiciary, by police, by investigators, which means that often women's claims are undermined and at the same time the claims of perpetrators um, are taken to be the truth, which means that women do not have equal access to justice uh, or the ability to claim um, legal redress for GBV in Iraq in most instances. So that gives you a quick summary of, of what we found in the report. Um, and now I will hand over to Anfal, who will speak in Arabic, I believe, um, on the on GBV in Iraq and put this in context um, for you. So over to you, Anfal. And if you wanna listen in, in English, please make sure that you switch to the English interpretation on the bottom right hand corner of your screen. Come um uh, Hi, I would
1: like to introduce myself. My name is Anfal Abd Kabam. I work in the NGO community as a specialist in GBV, and I worked as a team leader with LC for the research. Uh, I have five minutes to speak, so I will quick, in general, I'll speak in general about the GBV in Iraq and the shapes and the forms and the practices that resulted from that from that violence which led to another forms of violence, also a deterioration and and the, the social system, also in the judicial system in Iraq. First part, when we speak about uh, GBV in Iraq, it became um, some sort of a the, the structural violence. It became structuralized in each detail of life. And uh, based on the gender roles between uh, males and females, uh, due to that, uh, a lot of harmful practices were resulted. Uh, especially against women, and women became uh, a, a marginalized uh, community or, or a vulnerable community. And based on that classification of, of gender roles between uh, males and females, uh, another forms or multiple forms of, of, of violence were resulted. For instance, uh, the domestic violence, uh, other harmful practices such as the minor marriage and the pleasure marriage the muta marriage uh, and since it's a structural violence the the legal system the judicial system and the executive tools of the, of the law became based on uh, the classification of roles between men and women and this this actually prevented, for instance, reporting violence. And this led to a weakness in reporting violence uh, when it comes to women. And, uh, and even if some women are encouraged to report uh, the violence they were subject to, the mechanism to, to deal or interact with the uh, with violence cases such as such these, uh, uh, sometimes it's unfair to them uh, in, in general against women. Uh, given the fact that the the traditions and the customs and the cultural heritage that could uh, that women are living through and so the same thing applies on the community which inherits these traditions Uh, for instance uh, even the law enforcer for sometimes the law enforcement agency uh, agent could actually represent the same environment of the abused women, which makes them to underestimate the report. or And there's a lot of uh, legal clauses. There's a lot of laws that that protects by the law. But when we see the mechanism and the details of that, we see a form of discrimination when it comes to the response to cases relevant to GBV. Due to these uh, gender roles also, There was a weakness when it comes to providing legal services to women, which led to creating economic issues. Uh, Many women, uh, for instance, given the fact that uh, traditions and customs, they were prevented from from education. But by by that, they were deprived from. Eventually, they were deprived from job opportunities. Uh, Modern marriage, also resulted to turning women into some sort of a burden, per se, to the family. And their role became is just cleaning and conceiving babies, raising kids and cooking food. And, and also they, they are marginalized when it comes to taking a number of decisions. They are always deprived, for instance, from the inheritance. And this is an also another form of economic violence, which is also based on gender roles between men and women. And uh, the, this circle of, of violence has increased, which to the point that included the, the legal represent, oh, sorry the, the political representation of, of women, which was influenced by the gender roles enforced in the society. So uh, we see all administrative positions uh, that requires serious decision making or decisive decisions you don't see women a presentation there or no presence for women and in the ministries or or even in the mod ministry of defense uh, women can get to a specific rank maybe a brigadier and that's it no more promotion so gbv has become an e- has been, has been become present in each detail of life and it doesn't only include you know the poor areas or the uneducated even the mediocrity level, even the, 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 the bourgeois level of the society, they were influenced one way or another with GBV. So we're currently, as the CSOs, we're trying as much as possible due to the, the, the objections that we face and the pressures that we're facing. We try as much as possible to provide protection mechanism by legislating the anti-domestic violent law. And we try to, one way or another, not to connect or to affiliate advo- our advocacy only to to women so they won't be rejected or, or, and another, or we won't be increasing more challenges to ourselves. So there is a misconception towards the anti-domestic violence which provides protection for all family members not only for women there was uh, a misconception they started to call it the women law though uh, doesn't only include protection for women it protects each and every marginalized person inside the family and in fact challenges are numerous for us as the CSO there are a lot and it's a long way to walk but on God's will we shall continue the path and I hope that we will able to achieve a small part of protection for women and to encourage them to report and we educate them and raise their awareness towards the reporting mechanism and also at the same time we try to to conduct awareness sessions for the executive staffs of the MOI, Ministry of Interior, uh, towards GBV. Thank you so much. Uh, I don't know if I'm out of time.
0: So now I'll, I'll turn to Sit Amal. Um, And one of the key recommendations we made in the report was for the adoption, for the expedient adoption of the domestic violence law, or the anti-domestic violence law, that's basically been uh, rejected by Parliament on three occasions since 2015, uh, despite the efforts of women's rights organizations to um, have this law adopted. Uh, So Siddharth, can you speak a little bit about um, why the domestic violence law is so important um, Um, and what changes um, its adoption, and what protections this would provide to women in Iraq. I'll
1: talk about the anti-domestic violence law which is one of the most important topics that the CSOs want to achieve so thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to convey the point of view of CSOs, Iraqi CSOs with regard to GBV and the importance of endorsing and legislating the law for domestic violence. The CSO demands has started in Iraq after 2003, when they noticed that there's an increase of uh, domestic violence crimes, and it became more growing and represented a danger on the unity and the stability of society and family in general so these cso's aimed extensively and advocated with other civilian entities such as the advocate union and other civilian entities and women organizations to put pressure on the
0: government
1: the anti-violence anti-domestic violence law and this is the start point for to the importance of the legislation to that law so back in 2010 the government aimed to create a national team that includes cso's to prepare the first draft for the law uh, that draft reached the parliament in 2015 and then cso's worked along with the parliament towards legislating the law since 2015 until 2019 and they convened a number of sessions and discussions and debates between uh, political parties. And the objective behind that was to find a way to come up with a project of firm law that provides protection and safety to the domestic violence victims and protect their dignity. And in fact, yes, in uh, 2017, through joint work with uh, the parliament by the Women and Child Committee, the legal
0: committee, uh,
1: we were able to, to get a draft for the law, which was based on a consensus that included providing standards. They were not up to the expectation of the CSOs, indeed, but it provides a space or an environment of measurements and actions that protects victims and their dignity. And indeed, the draft was read within the legislative course of action twice but unfortunately it was never voted after 2017 because of the end of the term of the parliament and getting into the election period but one of the factors that in addition to the end of of the political term our diagnosis to the ordeal is not in legislating the law is uh, the weakness of the women committee not having a faith or a belief and the importance of implementing and executing such a law within the female members of the parliament and male members, of course, this participated in hindering the project. The the, the deep interpretation or deep understanding of GBV, the, the root causes towards that uh, within most of the politicians, is, it's still variable, but it's also considered one of the key challenges the interpretation of or their own understanding. Some members or some political parties believe that the law is against the Islamic Sharia, for instance. Or others believe that it's against customs and traditions and, and, and norms. And this is definitely comes from a patriotic point of view, from that authority, fearing that their position will be shaking inside the family, by which maybe we will... Redivide authority between family members. Uh, but despite of all these obstacles and challenges, uh, CSRs are continuing to put pressure. So many initiatives were created post-2017 and they contributed in providing two drafts for the law. One of these drafts were issued by the president's office and it was titled as the anti-domestic violent law and the second draft was provided by the government through the through ComSec in 2020 which was titled Protection from Domestic Violence. Indeed both copies or both drafts is a good gesture that reflects maybe a partial interest or maybe a partial attention with regard to the importance of having a law domestic violence which we can see the rapid increase of its crimes and its threat to the society these two drafts has a number of positive points Uh, some articles from the draft that was uh, submitted in 2017 and this is also something good but again the previous parliament the previous term we through that we couldn't fully we couldn't fully press put enough pressure towards one of the political blocks to put a copy of that draft in the agenda of the parliament uh, due to the political situation and not having a priority for women issues or women affairs or not having a priority to eliminate or mitigate uh, domestic violence crimes so this these copies were slowed down and it never reached the agenda to be read so it wasn't discussed or it was never voted for. I believe that uh, CSOs has extensively reviewed both copies. They, they, they were issued by the president's office and the council of ministers, and it identified its priority, given the fact that it's one of the most important stakeholders in creating or fighting a law for domestic violence. So we see that it's very important that the law includes a clear definition to the concept of domestic violence with its different forms Beca- for instance because uh, the forms of violence is always getting newer and newer and the methods are changing depending on time community and the environment so by which there is a need to have a clear definition of domestic violence. This will also need us to identify penalties to deter such crimes. And this is quite important. One of the biggest issues that uh, the the 2015 law faced is not having enough deterring penalties for uh, domestic violence. Crimes And even both drafts or copies that I spoke about previously also didn't have any deterring penalties. It, It was only minor or light penalties in case the protection order was violated, which is issued by the specialized judge. We also believe, or like CSOs believe, that the process of fighting domestic violence is a shared responsibility for all community members by which there is a need to have real sharing and real participation by the CSOs to train, to qualify, to manage, and also to monitor the implementation of the law and managing the shelters. Unfortunately, this also requires advocacy, requires pressure to have a key role for CSOs, which are closer to monitor domestic violence and assess their needs. As well as that, CSOs has the capacity to move swiftly and have expertise and capacities in training, rehabilitation, and providing fully integrated services for victims. I don't want to elaborate furthermore, but I would say in conclusion of this introduction uh, or this uh, comment, uh, I would like to say that we are in Iraq are way behind compared to our regional environment which most countries around us have specific laws for domestic violence, such as Kuwait, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, Palestine, Lebanon, Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco, and now we are still discussing, is it possible to open shelters for uh, domestic violence victims? Is this acceptable by the community? Uh, Does the state has the capacity to create and build such houses, are they against such thing? I think it's a priority to have shelters to provide the required protection for the domestic violence victims and also to take some actions or procedures in order to de-escalate the amount of violence by the perpetrator by enforcing specific measures such as protection or having therapy or sessions or some counseling, some social activities, anything as alternative penalties in case there was there was a necessity for such penalties. This is the most important thing that we have right now. And this is what the CSOs are aiming for in order to identify their point of view towards their anti-domestic violence law. There is a continuing Campaign titled by the CSOs calling to legislate the law, and it's titled It's not. Includes different local entities, effective uh, public figures, national figures, civil activists, advocates. They put pressure towards having, in this political term, a role or some time to legislate the anti domestic anti-domestic violence law. In Iraq, thank you so much. Sorry to elaborate.
0: And thank you for sharing the perspective of um, civil society groups in in Iraq on the domestic violence law. Um, so we'll end with with Marwa, who will speak a little bit about the kind of obstacles that women face when trying to um, submit petitions to in criminal courts and in personal status courts. And again, this is something that we talk about in the report. Um, and we detail a number of obstacles, including administrative costs, uh, corruption and bribes, gender stereotyping and um, stigma. So I'll hand it over to Marwa, who is a lawyer, to speak about this issue in more detail. Good evening. Thank you.
1: Thank you uh, to all of my colleagues in the session. I will speak. Uh, about something i was almost fully dedicated for in the past few months i've been engaged with for months extensively and i actually left everything behind and only focused on this case and if i may i can i can share a a, a copy of the court order and through the court order i would actually sh- shape my details uh, just a minute
0: Okay, uh, Marwa, you can uh, share your um, your presentation now.
1: So this is case A. Uh, if it's clear, the judge decided for this woman to go for the mutawa, which is returned to the husband's house in brief, the story the woman is orphaned no mother no father her cousins married her to a, a, a man who was disabled war and she gave birth to eight children this disabled person had her locked in the house and he didn't allow her to leave the house he beat her c- continuously she and her children and she was always abused and lastly he kicked her out of the house and he told her you are never to return so he thought she didn't have anyone to go or or she will just go back to to his house. I mean, he thought that she had no one. Bottom line, he kicked her out of the house, and she decided to come to me as an attorney. For a start, the husband immediately filed a suit. Al in Iraq. This is where the husband forces the wife to go back to the house if the requirements are available, which is house and new furniture. Here, I would talk about the first challenge, which is the legal challenge. In Iraq, we have a lot of laws that limit, that uh, that are not respectful to the dignity of women. First of all, the mutawa, which is in the civil state law. The, this is the first challenge, which is the legal challenge, and I will speak about Many articles are still offensive and disrespectful to the position of women and the dignity of women. I mean, on which basis a man forces his wife just because he have a house i mean he have four walls and a ceiling the second obstacle i will talk about which is also resulted from the which is the masculinity of the judge uh, the no though not so much legal guarantees were provided in such a case he was in the favor of the husband simply and he forced the wife to come back to the house though many things were Illegal in the... I mean, literally, the judge was saying, I will get her back to her husband. Her husband is disabled. He, even when I was trying to clarify uh, the details, he said, no, 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 she talks a lot. And the judge, I mean, he thought that she was so talkative. So after many sessions, I mean, the the woman became so strong and she didn't still... She wanted to clarify that she, she was going through unjust... And the judge couldn't even tolerate. He said, women shouldn't talk and don't bring your woman defendant. Uh, when you're there, don't bring your defendant. I don't want to hear her. And this is the other challenge, which is that point of view of, of, of law enforcement agencies and the judges and their masculinity and the, and, and the other obstacle, which are the financial cost. Until now, we're trying to find a way to reduce the cost of the financial expenses. I mean, she had a payment because the disabled person usually gets a financial aid to the assistant. So she had a salary of an assistant and this was never used by her. Immediately, whenever she cashed the salary, he will take it and she had no economical income. So these financial costs were trying to to mitigate them somehow uh, areas that some 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 places requires a bribery because people think if a woman has an attorney that means the woman can't afford so she can afford a bribery so usually i would send her alone to the places where they usually ask for a bribe because when they see an attorney with a defendant i mean the, the bribery will increase maybe it will jump from ten dollars up to 50 if they see an attorney with her so financial cost is another challenge women. A while ago, Miss Amel was talking about the anti-domestic violence. Speaking of which, I will talk about the bureaucracy within not having the law. Uh, so I tried to press charges and have a complaint for the woman, because she had eight children and three three minors. He He tried to set them on fire. He tried to burn, he threatened her to burn the children. So when I went there for the domestic violence, they told me, if you press charges here, we will refer you to another court according to the geographic zone. As if as if it's like running in circles in order just to disable women somehow from, through that bureaucracy. So when I went to the court by the geographic location, I didn't want to show myself. I wanted to stay behind because as I explained, if they see me, they will charge more bribery from her. So I wrote the complaint to her. And the detective and the investigator literally told her, go back to your husband. Where were you? You have eight children with that man. Go back to your husband. This is what the investigator said. So she had to call me because I was there waiting outside. So I went there talking to him. I was like, on which basis are you telling her, go back to your husband? I mean, any citizen, whether woman or a man, has the, the right to complain, to press charges. And she came here and you are here legally responsible. So he tried to run in circles, and then he decided to take the complaint. And it stayed on, on the shelf because women cases, especially the battery, are considered minor cases, are unimportant to most. So we held charges, but it didn't take the proper space. It's just to support the civil state case. Uh, so bribery and masculinity of of the legal system, all these details are challenges. And also bureaucracy, as I mentioned, is another issue. And uh, so far for the case A, after all that bureaucracy and routine, I will speak about the difficulty to measure the damage resulted to women. I mean, uh, it's very difficult if she doesn't have a medical report, to measure and gauge the damage. Also, the testimony of children is not accepted for women. This, the same case, when the husband passed charges, the judge took the testimony of the children, but when she held the case against the husband, the, the, the judge didn't accept the testimony because the judge has the right to accept or deny the testimony of anyone. So again, back to the difficulty of measuring the damage towards women. So all these issues that women suffers from I think I faced in case A, and her cases are still continuing for months, hoping that we will get at least a small fraction of her rights. Yesterday, we got a subpoena for for the Nishus case. So if the, the wife was judged as nauseous, so all of her legal rights are declined. So we have issues with bribery, we have issues with bureaucracy, with the masculinity of people working in the judicial system and also in measuring the damage, which is quite difficult. I have images right now and the judge is not accepting them. You know, like the judge depends on a medical report. Uh, I mean, a medical report issued from a medical committee. So all these issues were actually collaborating in this case and this is a small fracture of a suffering from a Iraqi woman that suffered every single thing available when it comes to legal issues or problems in the law or the issues in the community. I hope I did not elaborate. If you have any questions or inquiries, I'm available. Uh,
0: thank you, Marwa. You were great. And um, I think you really shed light on just one example of the hundreds or even thousands of um, examples of gender stereotyping and discrimination against women in Iraq in the um, judiciary which we came um, or we heard about time and time and time again when we were doing the interviews for this um, for this report so what I'll do now is if you have any questions please put them in the Q&A box Um, I have to ask all the questions in English because it makes it easier for um, the recording of this event. Uh, So what I'll do is I'll start by asking um, Sit Amel um, a question. Uh, So you talked a little bit about the domestic violence law and the kind of difficulties you've had in um, ensuring that this gets adopted. So I wanted to ask you whether um, you think that there are any opportunities for advocacy now that we're seeing a new um, government come into power uh thank you so much i believe
1: that uh, we still have hope as activists as cso's that there is a capacity and there is potential to legislate the law despite of all challenges uh, that we face especially when it comes to the political blocks especially the ones with the islamic background maybe they are a bit strict towards being against but the, it's a work in progress and it's an ongoing attempt and pressure is continuing currently the government aims to review the draft that was submitted a while ago to the parliament so they would add some things that were provoked by the uh, cso and maybe bringing it back to the parliament for Review and this is an encouraging step that supports the efforts of uh, CSOs towards creating a law that sets the equal standards to the international standards, also when it comes to gender based cases.
0: Uh, do you know of any laws or campaigns to adopt um, sort of gender-based violence laws more broadly outside the framework of just domestic violence or are you just concentrating on the domestic violence law at the moment? Uh, in fact,
1: uh, the goal behind the anti-domestic Violence law, yes, it covers all family members, but most of the victims are women and children. And we deal with this matter in order to override that issue of claiming that women organizations claiming for laws only for women, and they try to make women as victims. So we're just trying to abandon this issue. It's just a way around it to create a law that can fix domestic violence issues and definitely there is a national policy government policy dedicated to to combat and fight a, a gbv uh, so if this was accompanied by the law definitely there will be a capacity to protect all women subject to violence
0: Sure. Thank you. Um, and this, I'm going to pose this question to all three of you. So whoever wants to answer can. Um, it's a question from Gule Bo, which I think is, is very interesting. So she says, how um, are women's rights organizations collaborating with other civil society actors in Iraq, such as bar association, universities and the media? Um for the domestic violence bill, and Mm. more broadly, what are the opportunities Mm. and challenges in building alliances with these institutions? I would leave
1: my colleagues to respond and then I will comment later. So I don't want to monopolize the time. Marwa, Anfal, if you would like to respond. Regarding the alliances are already in place with regard to, let's say, law, by which Iraqi Women Network comprises of uh, uh, organizational entities, uh, women movements, multiple women movements, all of them has the same demand, and they all unified their demands and their efforts in conducting advocacy campaigns with regard to the anti-domestic violence bill and uh, drafting the law. So it's in place already in Iraq.
0: (laughs) If I may,
1: in fact, the civil society work when it comes to the anti-domestic violence law still faces great challenges with the media. Media is not positively interacting or not interacting widely with domestic violence cases because it's, un, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a media that follows political parties. It's not independent. So it's a facade or it's a front to these movements. That's why they don't adopt The legislation, but CSOs utilized social networks to promote regarding the domestic violence cases and what women faces, uh, what children are going through, the challenges towards having protection uh, from domestic violence, and this helped us in raising the awareness and also to to socially advocate to the law.
0: Thank you. Um, I'm going to ask another question, which feel free, whoever wants to answer can answer. Um, First of all, thanks, Annette and Huda, for um, putting your info in the chat box. I'll I'll share it with the other panelists and hopefully you can sort of be in touch um, and maybe it will lead to some nice collaborations. But the, the questions are, Um, Do you think that there are any parliamentarians, particularly women parliamentarians, that have come through um, during the current uh, election cycle that you think might be good people to approach and who might support you um, in your campaign for the adoption of the anti-domestic violence law? And relatedly, how have you been supported by the international community, or how would you like to be supported um, by the international community in your campaigns to have um, this law um, enacted? And have there been any male politicians that have, sought, have supported um, this, your campaigning?
1: Anyone would like to answer or should I answer? Regarding the women parliamentary, in general, politicians who wins usually are not independent. So their decisions, they're always following their parties or the political affiliation. They're already sharing the, the power. So even if they supported us, they cannot you know, publicly stand with us or fruitfully per se on the ground because uh, all of their movement, all of their actions should be, you know, preset or approved or authorized uh, by their affiliations or affiliates. So uh, so for the parliamentaries uh, that are in our support or advocate for us, uh, well, this is rare because... Uh, as independent they're not there and many entities the influential ones have are mostly with the religious background so this is the first part regarding parliaments as for the the international funding or the international support yes definitely all campaigns and all literature and program were funded by the let's say international entities or organizations their assistance to us is to continue the support for advocacy campaign and to build to continuously build the capacities in this regard as a way to put pressure on the decision makers towards the government. And maybe they can assist us not only by funding and the capacity building. Maybe they can assist us and help us to put pressure on the government of Iraq and and legislating these laws. Similarly, there is the 1325 resolution, and the government of Iraq, let's say they are compelled to consent on uh, many of its articles. There needs to be an international pressure towards the law with relevance to domestic violence in general, especially the ones concerned with women protection. Uh, I don't know if anyone wants to add, uh, sorry to elaborate. Can I add to what Amfal said? for us as cso's or uh, women activists d- definitely we have conducted an inclusive uh, survey for the type and uh, the competency of women who were who reached the current parliament definitely it's not a small number we're talking about 95 women and most of those women are, are affiliated with a political party but in these elections uh, independent characters were able to succeed and also civil movements, for instance, dad and a few other independents. This will help us in the upcoming phase to bridge the communication between us and them to legislate the law. We had uh, meetings with uh, parliamentary women members from dad movement and also some other uh, uh, members from the Kurdish parties, the women members, and definitely the Kurdish blocs are always in our favor or they are supporting, but we aim to develop that support in order to provide more support towards the law. For us as CSOs, uh, we need to unify our vision, and this requires a review for both drafts and in order to identify what priorities that needs to be included or embedded in the draft and to provide a consolidated unified document that includes that vision the iraqi women network a paper was prepared a unified paper but it only reflects the iraqi Women network point of view this needs a discussion a deep discussion by all alliances all networks women networks in order to be reviewed and to to be complemented, revised, and edited, so it can reflect the efforts of CSOs, and it can be inclusive for opinions, all opinions, from the CSO community. Thank you.
0: The next question I'm gonna ask is slightly different and I want um, Marwa to answer because I know that you've worked on this. So can you talk a little bit about the protests um, in October of 2019 and the impact that this has had on advancing women's rights and also the limitations um, of, of the protests and advancing women's rights. I know that this is something you've been thinking about. Thank you,
1: taif for that question. I think what happened in October is that women that took part in October, no one paid attention to their rights or their claims. All the roles that they took in October were logistic, uh, giving support and assistance and aid for people in the protest. So eventually, even the ones that we see in position, only few women from October. I mean, Ms. Amal, for instance, Emtidad movement, the number of women is very low. Even the entities that were created post-October, whether the, the civic or the political, the number of women is very limited. This definitely reflects that women were supposed to have other roles than the ones that they took in October to claim their rights, to demand their rights, to identify their rights. But the roles that they were taking back then were secondary, logistical, medical. Uh, They are gender roles. So this is what happened in October. I think if our role was different in October, I think we would see different results than the ones that we saw right now. But I wanted to talk about the anti-domestic violence law. Uh, The government, by principle, they don't consider it as a part of its priorities because after the end of the political term, laws are reissued back to the entity of issue, and then they request the government to undefine the law that is considered a priority. So the government did not consider or view that law as a priority to be reviewed. So by which we are waiting to have that law again to the parliament to be read. And I think what Ms. Amal mentioned, the Kurdish blocs are supportive to the law. If the support from the Kurdish Turks was a real support, we would see different results. The Kurdish blocks are not small. Uh, I think even the Kurdish blocks and their support to the law is electoral or it's based on elections. Usually they pay attention to the law right before the end of the term, maybe a few months before everybody gets interested and session starts. So I think all the interest that we see from these blocks is merely you know for political propaganda or electoral propaganda and to promote for that public image because what they say in public is different totally than what they say behind the scenes in the parliament
0: that um, the Kurdish parties would be willing to support the anti-domestic violence law in in federal Iraq, given that they already have a uh, domestic violence law in in Kurdistan. So do you think that there is this kind of solidarity or or not? Because in many ways, you know, it wouldn't impact them, I guess. (laughs) Well, I believe
1: they won't object or they won't be against. Voting definitely the Kurdish blocs will vote in favor but we want to see what's happening before the vote would the Kurdish blocs will lead the process you know the demand the claim so I mean we see the Kurdish blocs always demanding for you know budgets for the KRI uh, strongly demanding so would we see the same strong demand by the Kurdish blocs towards Lo- I don't think so because if they demanded that strongly we would see a vote for it, but they will not be against. They are supportive to the law, but they're not taking the role that they are supposed to assume. At the end of the day, we as Kurds, we have the law. So if the other members want to pass the law, they can advocate for it.
0: <laughs>
1: I think I have something to add we believe that uh, the kurdish blocs are not against they are in favor uh, by the joint work that we had with them but the distribution of committees that are responsible for preparing the draft is the one that controls the situation the women committee. that's why through the previous sessions the leading was by the dawa party for the women and also the southern block was very weak when it comes to and they were not aware to the importance of legislating the law they don't have the elements to collect the different opinions or to assemble the different members it was never ever a complete quorum for the women committee and this is one of the reasons that led to the failure and bringing the law for the first vote. Phase uh, two, the women committee could not have any copy of either draft from the presidency. The issue is the distribution of blocks and the committees and the management of these committees. This is what identifies what moves and what not. We think that the legal committee was supportive. In the previous phase now who is going to be in the legal committee and what is their position and view towards the project who is going to be in the women committee and what's their role and collecting positions and this is very important towards the advocacy of the law concerning the government the government the government few months ago has initiated to create a higher committee to review the draft once it's received by the parliament paving the ground to the review and also to bring it back to the parliament this committee includes the council of ministers the higher judicial council council state council moi MOD, cso's this is good also when it comes to the review process and to support towards pushing the law I have a clarification or an inquiry. We're thinking out loud here. Are we indeed in a need for a women committee in the parliament? The previous uh, term, they cancelled actually, they dissolved the whole committee. So if it never has a complete quorum, a full quorum, so we should ask ourselves as women: Do we really need that committee, or this will be the challenge or the obstacle? When it comes to not legislating these laws, maybe merging that committee with other co- committees will be better. Because in the previous committee, this is what happened, and Hayfat, I mean, submitted a request to dissolve the committee. So, do we really need, in fact, the committee, or the establishment is the challenge? Thank you, Marwa, for that
0: very thought-provoking question. I think what we'll do now because we only have one minute left, is I will bring the event to a close. So thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. Um, and thank you so much to Anfal, Marwa, Emel, um, for joining us also and for sharing their experiences. Shukran um, and we also want to thank Saud for his interpretation and Nadine for organizing this event. Um, and also just to say that it's been a really great pleasure of mine to work with you, Hana uh, and Fa'al, Marwa and ML. and I'm so happy that we got to do an event to um, sort of finalize this project, even though it's online. So thank you again for all your work um, and for joining us today.